Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I get asked all the time about the podcast. Why do I do it? What's involved? How do you get started and how much does it cost to produce? Do you make any money off of it or is your ROI on the show something different? I thought I'd have Brent Nelson on the show so we could trade our podcasting experiences. Brent is the host of the successful and entertaining Wealth and Law podcast and heavily involved in the wealth management space, just like me. He's a partner of the Tucson-based Ramon Law Firm and focuses on international and domestic estate planning. For those curious about the world of podcasting and where it can fit into your business or practice, this should be a useful listen from two people who have done it. Welcome back aboard, Brent, for a return visit. It is always a pleasure, Frazier. Thanks for having me back. Well, not at all. We're going to sort of lean away from estate planning and techniques and tactics and all that stuff and talk about something that I really got excited about when I heard your specific podcast around some of your thought process about your podcast. So for those people who are sort of like, what are these guys talking about? It's podcasters talking about podcasts, but from the legal and finance and wealth management side of things. I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk about our experiences. And for those people out there who are wondering what's involved and how we view success, that's kind of where I thought we'd get started. Yeah, makes sense. I get asked about it all the time. I'm sure you do too. Oh, no question about it. So maybe let's start all the way at the beginning. Why did you do it? Well, I was doing a lot of writing and speaking already before jumping into the podcast thing. And then we were doing some webinars and I thought those were okay. And the only thing that I didn't like about the webinars was that you would do it one day and it was like whoever was available that day at that time would show up and you would do it. Same thing with doing something in person, like a presentation, you know, you would do it that day. There'd be whoever was available that day would be there and that would be the end of it. And one of the things that was interesting to me about podcasts was that they have a very long tail to them. So they, once you record it and post it, it exists until you pull it down from the internet. Maybe it exists beyond that too. I don't know, but you know, it just sort of lives on forever. So you get a little bit more from a kind of business development perspective, maybe a little bit more bang for your buck. And then the real kind of underlying reason why I was doing it and why I've always done writing and speaking, which is the thing that actually gets me interested in doing it beyond the business side, which the business side is fun and all, but I'm a little bit of an academic at heart. And so doing the business is not always the thing that gets me out of bed. But I was noticing in a lot of meetings that I was sitting through with various organizations, state bars, local estate planning councils, et cetera, that they were always talking about how do we get young people trained in this field? And they would often come up with ideas that were good ideas, like discounting prices to seminars or to materials like manuals and maybe putting together boot camp series for for younger practitioners. And I always thought, well, the issue is it's not free. That's the biggest issue. And it's hard to access. You have to like travel to go. And so that's not so easy when you're young in these careers because it's so time consuming. And so I thought, why don't I do that thing? 
and I'll put it up and it'll be for free and anybody can access it. And I'll just share freely what I know and then I'll bring other people on because I thankfully have met lots of people in my career and I can talk to them about different issues that are related to our practice and they can share their expertise and that will all be free too and there's no paywall. And so I'm kind of giving back to this profession of mine that I actually enjoy, but I get to do it in this weird academic way that I also enjoy and it keeps me interested. I tell people when I bring guests on, especially around sort of arcane topics, that it's a great way for me to keep my blade sharp. And, you know, I may not be 100 percent expert in one thing, but hopefully if I talk to the right people and ask the right questions, I can get 85 percent of the way there. And then, you know, I've expanded my network in a tangible way. And, you know, I get to build off of their Rolodex, too. I'm dating myself by using Rolodexes as opposed to Salesforce or something like that. But it's something I would normally do anyway. I started my podcast way back in time. I mean, it's going to be well over five years ago. And my first people I was talking to were people I were interested in fields completely away from law and wealth management. My first one was with an architecture critic and then someone who wrote crime novels. And it was my way to sort of scratch an itch of curiosity in various fields where, you know, I would get if I was bored with my day job, I would just sort of go out there. And I thought it was also useful to be out and for the same reasons you're talking about, creating a body of intellectual property that I could reference later. And as it's evolved over time and it's sort of become more focused on legal and wealth management and accounting and business succession stories and so on, it's turned into a nice font of research for other projects, whether writing or books or any other type of thing like that, where I'm able to get out there and talk to people who really know what they're talking about and make myself a little bit better of an advisor. Yeah, there's a lot of that for me, too. Of I, throughout my entire career, have learned a lot just by speaking with other people and even very informal conversations with other people, whether that was because they knew about something that I didn't. And so they were telling me because they were the expert on that topic. And I was lapping it up, just happy to to learn from them and hear their thoughts. Or it was an opportunity for me to really flesh out and try out my own thoughts on a topic just through a, a normal casual conversation with somebody else. Cause sometimes it's not something that I've necessarily thought through perfectly, but just talking it out with somebody else helps me to formulate my own ideas on it. And the podcast to some degree has replicated that at least for me, but in a format that's recorded and then blasted out to the world. So whether that annoys everybody that it is kind of that way or not, I don't know, but that's not really the point. I'm just trying to get those, conversations that I was having that I thought were valuable for me out into the world again with this thought of it can help people, it can make the profession better, it can make people who are trying to do this thing that I do, that I think of as a highly technical and very difficult thing to do, not to pat myself on the back, but I think it can be that and to just help people out and give them a little bit of a boost the way that it has helped me and boosted me. How did you get started? At what point you said, okay, the webinar part has its pluses and minuses, but the podcast part could address some of those minuses and you go and make the decision to do it. How did you get started? I guess I got started by pumping myself up enough that I could do it and then just doing it. I think we recorded maybe, I'm saying we because initially most of the episodes I did together with my associate, Rachel Sass, who still comes on and will do the podcast with me, but she's since 
has had a baby and has a little bit more busy family life, which is which is amazing. It's the cutest little baby in the world. So so she kind of isn't spending quite as much time doing the podcast with me as she was initially. But initially we did we did two or three episodes and then we just released them. And it was a little bit scary. And I didn't really enjoy listening to myself talk. And it was it was a bit of a like, all right, here we go. I don't really know where this thing is going. But I had committed right up front, at least to myself, not like anybody cared. You know, it's not like there's any listeners who ever really hold me to it. But I had at least committed to myself that I was going to do it once a week because I knew that I needed to have a frequency that would really push me. And I wanted to be able to build up, like you were talking about, a body of material where one, you can reference it, two, you can cover a lot of different topics, and three, I also had in the back of my mind this perhaps incorrect idea that at some point, the way that people interact with professionals or professions and the way that they access information is just going to be more and more driven by technology. And that technology is going to be based off of the information that's available widely through open networks. And so you have to have, if you want to be noticed in that sort of an environment, you have to have a large enough body of work so that the technology knows that you exist, let alone the the humans that you interact with in person. My origin story on this was a little bit different. Obviously, I was coming at it from addressing other intellectual interests. I got started, I've been told all the time, and I'd had a radio show in high school and did a little TV production in college that, you know, I've got this deep baritone voice and I should be using it for something. And I finally agreed with people. And I got started by going to a studio here in New York, I'm based in Manhattan, and learning from an engineer as to how that works. And this guy, Paul Ruist, who's a terrific person at Argo Studios, and they do a lot of work with NPR and Canadian Broadcasting and a whole bunch of podcasts that you've heard of. And it was a great way to get into a very professional setting. And I learned kind of what makes things work well and what good sound is like and sort of different technical aspects of it. The challenge for me was then, A, I started out sort of insisting that people show up and get interviewed in person so that the sound was perfect. And that created a problem, which was I had to not only deal with my schedule, I had to deal with the other person's schedule and making sure they got to the studio at the correct time. And then I had to make sure that the studio itself was available. So I had three schedules I had to manage, and that became cumbersome. The other part was that it ended up being a little bit too expensive per episode. And I wandered into the idea of getting better on the technology front personally. And I engaged Matthew Passy, who does all of the big finance podcasts. And I spent a little bit of money to sort of hear his process and have him help develop the workflow. And that helped me get a lot more efficient and get to that cadence discussion that you were talking about, which is you said you wanted to do it once a week. I have tried to commit to myself to doing it twice a week, which has its challenges at times, but that's sort of where I've settled into now. That would have been extremely difficult if I was trying to figure out studio space and all sorts of things. Technology is such that my rig is a Samson microphone that plugs directly into my MacBook, and I've got a set of headphones on. The total cost of the 
audio part of it is, I think, $100. And the programs underneath it, which Matthew helped to establish the workflow to make things a little bit easier for me. I mean, that's another probably 40 or 50 bucks a year in terms of subscriptions so that the cost is just borderline zero. And I assume you're very similar. Similar, yeah. So and my setup has basically not changed since I started, which is that doesn't mean that that's a good thing. I'm not trying to suggest that anybody do everything the way that I have done it. But I have I got into it on the very practical side, the opposite of you. I just Googled how to do a podcast and tried to find the cheapest but somewhat legitimate ways to do it. So I have a Yeti blue mic. I've always used a Yeti blue mic just because that was on lists of mics that seemed to be good circa 2019 when I was searching for these things on Google. I always use headphones, so I have my headphones plugged into my computer as well. I just plug the mic directly into my computer. Basically, I don't have any sort of like EQ system or fancy stuff like that. I have never sprung for it. I just don't care enough. And then for virtual stuff, we typically will record using Teams, which is garbage. I mean, Teams is not a great program and the audio quality is not amazing, but I'm really just trying to capture the audio and not going for perfect, crisp audio quality. I set up a WordPress site early on. It's also garbage. It doesn't look nice. It has crappy graphics. The pages are clunky. And all of that is because the operator on the back end of it is me. And I know nothing about WordPress. I spent all my time on being a lawyer and zero of my time on learning how to write code for WordPress. And then I have a subscription with a group called Blueberry. That's where the actual podcast files live. And then from Blueberry, it gets linked to my WordPress site via a URL that I get from Blueberry once I upload the, the media. And then you just enter when you when you post something on, on WordPress, there's a little space where you can just drop in the URL to the podcast with the podcast plugins that WordPress has. And from there, it just launches everything out to all the aggregators. So then the only thing you have to really do is go and set up an account with the aggregators. So Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. I'm trying to think what other one. There's there's Podbean, a handful of them I in there. Yeah, one. Podbean, exactly. So you just set up an account once with those and then it links to your podcast. And again, you get a URL from WordPress, for example, that links out to them. And it all of that on the back end does all the work for me. I, I did it once and like 2020, early 2020, and I've never looked at it again. I don't even know if it's set up right. I just know that on my Apple podcast app and my Spotify app, the podcast and the episodes show up, so I'm good. That's all I really care about. But the practical reality is that the setup, like you're saying, the cost is very nominal. The mics are not that expensive to have a decent mic. And then the technology on the backside of it is as cheap and rudimentary as you want it to be. I was going to say my rig is essentially the same as yours. I have a WordPress site. I have Blueberry, which does the hosting and the driving out to the iTunes and Spotify's of the world. I use Skype, which is really dating myself. It's like, you know, having an AOL account, I guess, from a communications spine. Except it now has chat GPT and it's chat feature. Uh, wonderful. Yeah, because it has Bing. Well, I won't even need my voice anymore. I can just type it in and simulate it going forward. That's right. <laughs> I'm real, actually looking forward to that, Frazier. I think that's going to improve your podcast substantially. Uh, I, absolutely. We, anything, <laughs> anything that takes it out of my brain is a good idea. 
and to be able to crowdsource it would be even better. But yeah, no, I mean, it's basically the same thing. The one thing that some people may be interested on the marketing side of things, I find the data that I get from Blueberry is, I'm not sure what it is as far as it breaks it down in terms of full downloads and then partial plays. And I've been somewhat disappointed with the data on it. I get probably about a thousand downloads per episode, plus or minus, but I can't really tell where it's coming from or, or what it means beyond that. Have you looked under the hood of that at all? I have not, which may get to the practical realities of how to optimize using podcasts and monetizing podcasts. But I, I look at the data at a very high level. So on Blueberry, like you're saying, you can see how many downloads you got per episode, which is, you know, it's nice. It's just good to look and see if people are listening. And then it'll tell you regionally and by major cities, metro areas, which is not all that helpful. It'll basically tell you like Southern California, like, okay, so 20 million people somewhere within 20 million people, somebody listen to the podcast. So it it doesn't drill down super tight into the populace. It doesn't tell you age demographics or anything like that, that I've seen, or maybe I just don't pay for it and I don't get that data and I've never thought I needed it. So I haven't explored it. Apple will give you data as well. Once or twice in the last couple of years, I've looked and seen like the number of subscribers and things like that. But because I'm not using it to openly solicit sponsorship opportunities and things. It just really has not been something that I track very carefully, which again, if you're trying to monetize your podcast, do the opposite of what I'm saying right now. And I sort of parked my car in that garage too. I sort of made the decision ahead of time, you know, I'm not going to bother with advertising. This is sort of, there's a different ROI for me on it. But yeah, I mean, there is a real cottage industry around figuring out what the metrics are, and you're going to need that if you're going out and trying to solicit people to advertise. They're going to want to know how many and where they are and who they are and how old they are and those types of things. So that's on the wish list for me at some point, finding a 21-year-old who is really facile with this, who can kind of help <laughs> help me do that type of thing while I'm busy trying to keep rich people rich and out of trouble and do all the other things that I do professionally. That's on my wish list is to sort of get the expertise in there to help me in a sense, professionalize that a little bit so that if I've sort of followed the, if you build it, they will come model, then the ones that do come and listen to your show that you have a chance to really understand what that is going forward. Right. So just speaking more on the kind of tactical business side of the podcast, because I'm not trying to monetize the podcast itself. And part of the reason why I haven't been trying to do that, and maybe similar for you is like, I have a real job. I have a real, real job, Yep, <laughs> like a real law practice with people who work for me. And I'm in a big firm and I work with a bunch of other big firm lawyers. Like I have a real job and it's a job that thankfully I don't have to do for free. So I don't need to monetize the podcast the way that maybe somebody who really wants to make their podcast their business uh, might need to monetize their podcast. So I'm not a creative in that way. But the podcast does fit into an overall business strategy, of course. It's not the business strategy for me, but it is part of the picture. And part of the podcast's purpose in my overall strategy for having a thriving law practice is I want to make sure 
two things are true. Number one, that I can provide something that is valuable, that I can give something that's valuable to other people for free. And oftentimes that's people who I work with, who are referral sources for me, who are friends, who are associates. So I want to be able to give them something for free, be that just doing the podcast and having good content and then having them be able to listen to that or having them on the podcast as guests and then kind of amplifying their their voice and helping them out. So there's that element. The other element is that the podcast also gives me content to share in other contexts. So it gives me content to share across social media. So it helps me to kind of maintain those funnels and to maintain the information feed across social media platforms. The biggest ones for me are Twitter and LinkedIn. That's where I get the most engagement. LinkedIn is the best one for me as far as like reach and engagement. But you just have to, those algorithms feed off of what you feed it. You have to be putting in information unless you're a a celebrity. But if you're a peon like me that nobody knows, you have to be feeding a lot of information into those funnels to get bang for your buck, so to speak. And the podcast gives me another way to do that that is kind of high value and something that looks good, looks, it does look professional. We try to make it look at least decent, even though the sound quality might not be perfect. But again, just to feed those tubes with information so that we continue to get noticed by the people that matter for our business. I was going to say one of the things that I think we share a lot of similar attributes on that side, Twitter and LinkedIn are sort of my two big social media outlets, Instagram to a much lesser degree, but not unimportant. In terms of engaging with other guests and so on, I view it as a great way, as you say, to amplify you know their voice on a platform and that I can accomplish lots of different things with that. Selfishly speaking, if I don't have a particular piece of business to refer to somebody, but I want to maintain a relationship, that's a nice piece of candy for me to be able to hand out. And especially for people maybe of a certain vintage who aren't well-versed in social media or getting their name out there or something like that, it opens up a door or helps them open their eyes to something bigger and better out there in terms of getting their expertise out there. One of the other things that I think is interesting about the podcast platform is that I have discovered I like to write too. I've written a book, done all these other things. It's a very efficient way for me to not only gather research, but also to get the first draft of something done quickly, because the transcription capabilities that are out there now can turn audio into text very quickly. And oftentimes, and I'm sure I share this with lots of other people, getting what's in between the ears onto the page can be a much different and much more arduous and time-consuming process. I find myself when I have to make presentations, generally speaking, that, you know, I'm recording them and using that as a way to generate text too. Have you had any experience with that or do you go the other way and have it written down and then go to the audio form? Oh, I almost never write it down and then go to audio. The level of preparation per episode is like shamefully little for me. I typically just go straight into it. And there is a reason for that. That's not just me being flippant. It's because either I'm talking about something that I already know a lot about, or I've been reading a lot about just because I like my profession is a bit of my own personal obsession. So I read about it a lot, or I have a guest on who is the know-it-all on that topic. And I don't really have to do anything. I just have to ask them a couple of questions and then they'll talk about it. So I don't use it in that 
way specifically. However, to your point, and this is certainly true for me, oftentimes, like I was saying earlier, I'm trying to test out ideas or I may be sort of fleshing out ideas as I go. And it's a good way for me to test out the ideas, to get the ideas kind of out of my head, because it may not be an idea that I'm willing to sit down and write a full-blown article on or a full-blown kind of white paper for a big presentation on, but I'd be willing to do a podcast on it just to get the idea out so I don't have to spend more of my life churning on it, which is what I'll do. I'll just churn on something. So it's super helpful from that perspective. But I, I still, I'm like you, I still like to write and I still do try to force myself to write and I still do a lot of presenting for professional organizations, you know, bar associations, et cetera. And one of the things that I think I've noticed about doing the podcast as it relates to that element of my career activity is number one, I have always been of the opinion, but maybe it's even more strong now that if you're doing a presentation for a group, you are the entertainment. And so you have to approach it that way. You have to approach it in a way of what is the way that you do this that is the most entertaining for other people. And I can assure you that that is not to put up PowerPoint slides with a thousand words on them. And so I've gotten to where my presentations are far more about the presentation and the words that I'm saying and the way that I'm saying it and way less about the materials that I'm putting up on the screen, even if I write a big, hefty 40, 50 page outline on the topic. The actual presentation is a lot more about entertainment. And I, I've been of the opinion, which may be biased and skewed, but I've at least been of the opinion of myself that doing the podcast, like you were saying, kind of helps me to, to sharpen the knife on those kinds of skills, those sorts of presentation on the fly, on the spot kind of skills, which is basically what a podcast is. I couldn't agree more. I think I've become a much better presenter because I've had to be a producer and sort of understand what or hope I understand what the listening audience is going to a want to hear and b be educated by but then be engaged with for a period of time. And that gets me to the next thing, which is a question that I get asked all the time is, you know, these seems these seem pretty good. How long does it take you to do all of it? And I've sort of nestled it down into, I'd say each podcast for me from soup to nuts takes five hours. And so the first hour is getting the guest, writing down some notes, maybe an outline to sort of have an arc to the conversation so that it doesn't turn into this extemporaneous thing. Also to help the guest get organized and so that they don't wander off in their conversation. Although I like the wander off parts, but at least I can steer it back into a direction so that we don't go too far afield. So that's about an hour to sort of get ready and get everybody going. Then the recording takes, let's call it an hour. We'll end up recording for, you know, somewhere short of that maybe, but that's how long that takes. Then the next hour is me taking the raw the raw recording, which hopefully doesn't require too much of editing or anything like that, but getting it into a form where I delegate the editing out to Matt's group, because that's the one area where if left to my own devices, it wouldn't get done. And then the final two or two and a half hours, which is something I desperately have to figure out how to delegate, is populating it 
I get the edited piece back. I put it onto the WordPress site. I take the show notes, which I wrote essentially to get the guest ready, and I put that in the WordPress and then, you know, get the picture and all that stuff and stitch it in there. It's not that big a deal. But then the, that final two hours is then socializing it and getting it onto LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram and, you know, email lists and et cetera, et cetera. And that to me is a horrible use of my time. <laughs> and that's something that I need to work on figuring out how to delegate that as much as possible so that I can turn that five hour process into really a three hour process. And I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. Well, when I say this, I'm not being judgmental. I, it probably takes me about half the time that it does you soup to nuts. Part of that is I delegate out some of the calendaring for the podcast. So oftentimes if there's somebody that I'm reaching out, as soon as we've connected, then I just loop them into my assistant to get it scheduled. So then I'm out of the loop on that. The recording takes about an hour, sometimes a little more, but it's, it's usually about an hour because we're usually, me and the guest are usually recording for a segment that's going to be like 20 to 40 to 45 minutes, somewhere in that range for every episode. So the actual recording takes longer than that, but it's still within about an hour. And then the editing portion I do, cause I do everything. It doesn't take too long. I use a free editing software called audacity and audacity has a few features where once you load something in, you can pretty much edit it down to a reasonable format within a few clicks, maybe clipping off a couple of loose ends in the file. So, for example, if you can sort of equalize the sound and the volume with a, an effect feature called normalize within Audacity. And then there's another feature in Audacity that will, they call it truncate silence. It'll, it'll reduce down the dead space. And so it really tightens up the recording. I usually use those. Sometimes I'll use the little EQ features, but that's pretty rare. And then I do all the music. I do all the intro, outro, everything. I have done everything. And so I already have the clips for the intro and the outro. I just drop them in through Audacity and then that gives me my audio file. The other thing that takes time for me is I prepare the art that goes with the episode. I use Canva. I have a Canva Pro subscription. Canva is super easy to use and I basically just recycle the same artwork with different photos of guests and you know the names and things get changed and the name of the episode gets changed. And then writing the copy and things for the social media takes a little bit of time, but it's not, it's not hugely burdensome. I'm not that good at writing long show notes and super descriptive things for SEO optimization and things that actual smart people do when they're trying to prop their podcasts up. But again, I'm not suggesting that people should necessarily do it the way that I, that I do it. If you're really smart and you talk to the really smart people who for a living advice people on how to do these things, they will tell you to do fulsome show notes that are SEO optimized. So you might even go in and search the top search terms and then make sure that you, you make sure that that ends up in your show notes so that not only are re you relying on the reach of say your social media, but you're also allowing for your podcast to be picked up through normal search engines with that SEO optimization on the back end too. I'm just not very good at it. I was going to say, I almost think that one of those five hours for me, I was clued into this by an acquaintance on Twitter who said, your podcast not being on YouTube is a gigantic mistake. 
And so while I'm audio only because video is too many moving parts for me to manage, having the guest worried about how their hair looks or, you know, if the lighting's right and all that stuff, that's a bridge too far for me and probably requires sort of a third producer for me to want to get into that stage. I did want to get started getting my YouTube channel, which was new upon hearing this in place, and to just take sort of regular the audio format and YouTubing it is its own process. And that seems like something that should be push of a button once you've sort of established a template and then you can drop the audio in and maybe add some words or text just to describe what it is. That's something I hope that the technologists out there can make more efficient going forward. Yeah, I hope so, too. And I actually I agree with the friend of yours who told you to do that on Twitter. I don't do any video. I've done videos for other people where I've appeared on their shows and they record the video and they release the video then in different formats, including as a podcast and then and also on a YouTube channel. And they they do really well. And that's a very effective strategy. I think video is an extremely good way to do it. And for anybody who's thinking about starting a podcast. That's an exceptionally good use of your time to do video. And it, I don't think it has to be of super high professional production level video. I mean, like right now, you and I, I know people listening to this maybe can't see it, but you and I are doing this on Skype, you know, so I can see your video on your computer. You can see my video on my computer. That's sufficient. That's enough. I mean, my, my hang up on video has been more the technological side like you and because I do everything. So one of these days when I decide that I'll just suck it up and I'll learn how to do the video editing, which I know is not that hard because people tell me that, then I'll do it and I'll I'll commit to it. But one thing that we're sort of dancing around this just a little bit, so I'll just say it very directly for people who are who are thinking about doing a podcast, whether it's in video or audio or both, yes, there is technology that goes into and process that goes into producing it. And you, number one, you can definitely do it yourself if you're looking to bootstrap the whole thing like I do and you don't want to pay somebody to do it. You absolutely can pay people and it's pretty reasonable per episode to do all of the work for you. They'll they'll have the whole setup and the links to the videos and the recording and they'll do all the editing. Don't let any of that prevent you from doing your podcast or video if you're even thinking about it at all and you have any inkling to do it. You should just do it because... The waiting and thinking and churning on it will not get it done. You just have to jump in and go for it. And it'll start out garbage. I promise it will start out. You'll be nervous. You won't like the sound of your own voice. You'll feel nervous seeing that something is recording, but that'll pass after two or three episodes and it'll start to get better and your cadence will be better and the way that you do the formatting will be better and the structure will be better and you'll improve over time and you'll see things that can get better. So don't even worry about starting. You just have to start. I get really nervous when I hear people say things like this. We just launched a podcast. Fraser, I can't even find my first podcast episode. <laughs> it's not even available on Apple. Mine's buried way down deep. I've now done 100 and I think 130 of these. And yeah, I mean, they're all down there. And I've gone through different periods of experimentation with different things. And I'm sure they're wretched and all that stuff. But you know what? That's part of it. When people talk about that also, as far as, oh, I want it to be perfect and all this, one way to get some experience is to appear on other people's podcasts. And I think that it's a great way to develop your voice, to talk about something that you know about. And then you'll bring that experience 
back into your field of vision, especially from an interviewing standpoint, being able to understand what questions work or don't work or what you thought maybe the other person might have done to give you a more open-ended question or something like that that helped to lead into the next thing. That's a great way to get your feet wet without, you know, before deciding to take the plunge and driving your own program. I completely agree. That's a great one. And the other thing is you should also probably find someone out there who has a podcast that you like. And then when you do your podcast, just try to make it like theirs. If that style appeals to you, then just kind of do it the way that, I mean, you don't have to do it. It doesn't have to be total copycat, but you could just use that as a template of like, okay, that's a good way to do it. I'll do it that way, maybe with my own little twist on it. So for me, for example, I have a friend, his name is George Grombacher and George has a fairly popular podcast that he started, I don't know, four or five years ago. I knew George well before the podcast. And so I've kept in touch with him and of course, listened to his podcast because he's my friend and I'm happy for him that he's, he's done it. He's been so successful with it. And George is great. And he just has people on, he just interviews them for the most part. Sometimes he does podcasts that are just him talking, but for the most part, he has guests on, he's done tons. He's done like well over a thousand episodes. So just, just think about the amount of guests and work that goes into that. But each episode, his format was always what seemed to me like fairly low impact. You know, he'd have people on, he'd just ask them questions, let that person talk. He might ask them, just listen and ask follow-up questions. So kind of seeing how he had done it and his approach convinced me that it would be easy and a pretty light lift. One of the things that you've done on yours that I have followed with great interest was occasionally you don't have someone on your show and you're talking about something in, in the sense you give a monologue or a presentation on a particular topic. And I just finished one of those on an article that I wrote way back in time talking about having a pivot fund. If you're having a sort of a career change of your own volition and you're going from something that's successful and stable into something that's tugging at the left side of the brain a little bit more and what's in sort of an intelligent way to do that. And, you know, this just goes out to say that it's okay to experiment with these things and to flex different muscles and really sort of listening to you do it from maybe something that was a little bit more technical or especially the podcast one that you did before gave me the idea that, you know what, this is a good idea. And there are other ways to skin the cat besides just interviewing other people. Yeah. I like a mix for myself. Sometimes I don't, I don't want to have to hunt down a, a guest or there'll be a topic that I want to talk about and I just want to get it out. Like I was saying, like, it'll just be sort of churning in my head and I just need to get it out so my brain can move on to the next thing. And so I'll do that on my own. But again, it was something that I had seen George do that I thought was interesting because he he's done, let's say, a thousand episodes with guests. And yet he's still perfectly willing to just do a short little clip of just him talking about some topic that obviously is of interest to him. And I think that's great. And then if you, you know, if you have to expand that out to people with even wider popularity, you look at somebody like a Gary Vaynerchuk, love him or hate him. He's that way as well. And he'll put out long form interview content. He'll put out content that's like two or three minutes of just him talking about something usually in a very fast and loud Jersey manner and everything in between. And so I think 
for me, the key takeaway was always, oh, this is something that I can do however I want to do it, which means the burden of doing it at the pace that I want to do it is actually pretty low. Because if there's a hurdle, it's a hurdle of my own creation. Right. Now, you mentioned a couple of the podcasts that you like to listen to. What other ones do you draw from that you really like or are entertained by or that you think is sort of unique from a format perspective that you've borrowed from? I don't listen to a ton of different podcasts. I listen to a couple of Spanish language ones because I, I like foreign languages. I listen to a, a BBC one in Russian that I that I like. And then I'm a huge fan and have been since the 90s of an English soccer team called Arsenal. And I listen to an Arsenal podcast called Arscast every year or every week. And then I like a podcast by Guy Kawasaki called Remarkable People, where he interviews all sorts of different people, usually academics or business people that have run and, and grown big businesses. And it's interesting. And other than that, it's pretty just like one episode here or there, not not necessarily podcasts that I follow. I was going to say, from my end of things, it's often driven by the guest. I will listen to the occasional Joe Rogan if I hear, you know, Quentin Tarantino's on it. And I was able to get through three hours of that all the way through immediately because I was riveted and interested in almost everything that was said. I'm a big Washington Commander fan, so I listened to John Keim, who is the ESPN reporter on it. I listen to that religiously. Locally here in New York, we have a reporter on New York One named Errol Lewis, who I find to be really nourishing from a political standpoint, New York politics, and then it bleeds into national politics. And I find him to be a straight shooter. And I, I really listen to him closely for his interviewing style. I mean, he's a journalist journalist. And I think the way he asks questions is particularly interesting. And then I'm a big movie buff. And a friend of mine, Jason Silo, has a podcast called Full Casting Crew. And I've been lucky enough to appear on that a couple of times, twice for James Bond movies and one for Halloween, the horror movie. And he has such an avuncular and interesting enthusiasm for the subject of movie making and TV and and a sense of humor about it. And he's not really profit driven through it. He's doing it to establish a body of work that he can hand on to his daughter to tell her how he thinks about different movies. And I just love that. And I get you know, they go on for an hour, depending on what it is. And I, I get so many different sort of factoids and trivia and just points of interest to it that I always try to find something with that to find ways to incorporate that into my broader into my broader show too. It's just something out there. It's interesting where you all take them from. And in many ways, I, I listen to the finance ones and certainly the Ritholtz. They have a whole bunch of different programs that are all very interesting. And the O'Shaughnessy's have there too, which are great. But then I need to diversify that or I, I get bored quickly and I need to hear more. <laughs> Yeah, I'm similar. I'll listen to some of the finance ones too. Ritholtz is good. The Kitz's ones are good. I like, although she doesn't do so many podcasts, but Penny Phillips puts out a lot of interesting content to me because she she's talking more about building financial planning practices and businesses. But a lot of the stuff that she talks about is pretty it crosses lines into any any sort of professional service. So she, sometimes I'll listen to her her stuff, depending on the topic. Yeah, there's so many podcasts out there that I would listen to if I had the time to just sit down and, and listen to podcasts all day long. It goes back to the, 
I have like a real job with a real law practice and real clients who pay real money for me to be available for them. So I don't have time to listen to everyone that I like, but I'm, I'm kind of like you all sort of spot pick guests. And so if I see something that's interesting, I'll just sit down and listen to it. I always get something from it that I think helps me with my own podcast. One of the things that I think has helped me a little bit is to try to be a little open-minded about ideas and topics. I mean that in a little bit of a general sense. So I'll give you an example. So for example, a few years ago, I could not stand Tim Ferriss. I would see stuff that Tim Ferriss would put out. He'd be like, and th- these are the eight things that I do every morning. To-. I'm just like, Jesus, barf. what a joke. What a <laughs> joke. I mean, nobody does that. That's a lie. These are the 15 things that I think about for success. Like, no, you don't. Nobody thinks about 15 things constantly every day. It's just, it's an impossibility. Why would you say that? But then I forced myself, partly because of my prejudice, to listen to him as a guest on some podcasts. And actually, I found him to be very, as a guest at least, to be very straightforward and open and honest about his thoughts on things. And so it's informed the way that I feel like I should be when I'm talking about topics on my own podcast or if I'm a guest on somebody else's podcast. So if they ask me a question about something rather than maybe giving a little bit of a flowery answer to just give them the very straight answer. And I think that's a good practice. It makes things a lot more efficient. A funny add-on to that, I I tend to be a 1.5x listener, meaning I speed them up in many ways just to kind of get through them. So an hour podcast only takes 40 minutes or 45 minutes and the ratio goes down from there. I met somebody who I hadn't had any interaction with, but I'd only heard him on 1.5X. And when I met him in person, I, I thought something was wrong. <laughs> I thought he, he was talking much more slowly than I expected. And I said, geez, this is an odd thing. But it gets back to direct answers with great context and good storytelling around it, I think is what ultimately makes for winning content. Yeah, it's the answer the question and answer why. Exactly. And I think if you can do both those things, efficiently, people will be interested in what you have to say. So, and you'll add value to the world. No question about it. Okay. As we wrap up here, we've gone on for a nice little bit of time, but I think it's been really interesting. And for people who are thinking about the podcast world or how to access it, I think this has been a really good discussion. Remind everyone, since this is your second go around on Wealth Actually, where do we find you? Where do we find your podcast? And where do we find your law practice? The podcast is Wealth and Law all spelled out, no ampersands. I'm all over social media at Wealth and the Law, also all spelled out. I'm a partner in an international law firm called Ramon, R-I-M-O-N. I physically live in Tucson, Arizona. I've almost always lived in Arizona, but my practice is based in Arizona and Colorado where I'm licensed. And then about 50% of my practice is international. And so that those clients are pretty much everywhere in the world and they don't care that I live in the middle of the desert. So that's where I am. If you Google Brent Nelson lawyer, you'll probably find me too. Excellent. Brent, thanks for coming on and continued success with the legal practice and the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. 
We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.